there's an island <clears throat> that is the size of Manhattan, and it's strictly off-limits to outsiders. Um, it actually harbors some of the most isolated hunter-gatherer societies known as the Sentinelese. I don't know if you've heard of them, North Sentinel. It's a small uh, island in size. Not a lot of people populate the island. They say probably about 100. Um, and people are not allowed to go there. If you do, uh, as others have found out, you will not make it out. Um, in fact, the government has some protection about five miles out from um, the island itself uh, for the Sentinelese people, that people are not to go there. Um, but it didn't stop one guy. And if you've maybe caught up on some news in the last uh, week, month or so, there's this guy by the name of John Chow. He's 26 years of age, a young millennial, all right? Not in the basement of his parents' house playing Fortnite, right? This guy instead is passionate about the Lord and was passionate about the North Sentinel people. Um, in fact, he's, he's quoted and putting in, in one of his journals that this was Satan's last stronghold on the planet. You might say, why? Well, here's what John recognized, it, is that these people closed to the world are missing out on the greatest thing of all, and that's knowing Jesus. They don't know. They don't know. And so as, as Scripture communicates and tells the people of God that it is our role and our responsibility to go to the ends of the world to, to tell and to share with those who do not know Jesus Christ. Because why? Because they are enslaved. They're enslaved to their hearts, and they don't know it. They're enslaved by sin and, and, and judgment and need Jesus to set them free from that slavery. And so Mr. Chow, on November 16th, set out, and he asked some fishermen, paid him 350 bucks to take him to the island North Sentinel, and he would be dropped off and go and share with the Sentinelese people the gospel. Well, the first event of trying to get onto the island, he was met with spears, which was kind of how they rolled. And so he got back on with the fishermen, they got back out to sea, and that night, it became November 17th, and Mr. Chow told the fisherman, he said, listen, this time, take me and then leave. Drop me off. And so the story goes that they did on November 17th of, of this year, and then that morning, um, the fishermen reported that they saw the tribal people burying Mr. Chow on the beach there. You might ask, why in the world would I share that this morning? <laughs> well, I want you to know that there are people all over the world that are enslaved, enslaved, um, and don't even maybe know it. Uh, for 430 years, the Israelite people were enslaved at the hands of the Egyptians. And there is a world today that is enslaved by sin, by death, by judgment. And some don't even know. And that's why John Chow was so passionate and even willing to lay down his life and be a martyr. The spirit of the likes of John Eliot 
Stephen in Scripture because he wanted them to know so that they could experience freedom, freedom. In our story today that was read by Graham, we read a story of freedom, a story of liberation, a story of a people enslaved but now set free. Today, I, I want to tell you the story of what is called the Exodus. It's the greatest redemptive story that we find in the Old Testament. Um, it's a beautiful event. And this morning, what I'd like to do is, is, is revisit the story, walk through it, take some high notes and some points to it, and, and then come to Jesus. And you might say, I didn't hear anything about Jesus in the story of the Exodus. I want to tell you how this story points to him and what that means ultimately for us in our Exodus. And so today, if you would, uh, keep open Exodus 13 and 14. And we're told in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Genesis, uh, the beginning of the Hebrew-Israelite heritage with the likes of a man by the name of Abraham, who God is going to call out. Um, And through that, God is going to make a people, and he's going to begin with a covenant. Uh, uh, He does it several times. We heard about the Edenic covenant uh, in Genesis last week. He's going to make what's called the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. You're going to see the Mosaic covenant with Moses as well. And God's heart is to have a relationship with mankind. We've seen that from the beginning, and he will do it in many different ways. And so he will begin this people, Israel. He begins with Abraham, and the Israelites will eventually end up in a place called Egypt. And how did they get there? Well, by the providence of God, um, the likes of a man by the name of Joseph, who was extremely dissed, all right, by his brothers in a major way, uh, Joseph was sent to Egypt. He was sold. And here he is in Egypt, and God is going to use Joseph in a great way because in the land was a famine, and the Israelites were without food. So who had food? Well, Joseph and the Egyptians had food, and so Joseph fed Israel, and the people were cared for. And then after that, Israel would become the slaves of the Egyptians for 430 years. And then you have the likes of a man by the name of Moses, who is raised up and comes on the scene You remember in the beginning of Exodus, God speaks to Moses through a burning bush, and God will carry the Israelites eventually through the miseries of Egypt to, as we read through the Old Testament, to the promised land, to Canaan, where they will conquer it with the likes of Joshua and so on. But what stands out in the midst of Israel's history is the story of the Exodus, of God's people being brought out of Egypt, being brought out of slavery. It's the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament that we read about. In it, we see God's judgment and the plagues upon the Egyptians uh, there in in Exodus as well. Uh, You will see also the story of the Passover, where God will bring great salvation, redemption for the Israelites. And so you see judgment, you see salvation. And then the story of the Exodus Um, we will see throughout the Old Testament will control, really, the discussion. 
If you go through the books of, of even the likes of Jeremiah, through the Psalms and other Old Testament writings, the writers refer often back to the story of the Exodus. In fact, everything in the Old Testament points back to this. Last week, we saw God as our maker. We've remembered that even this morning. Here in the Exodus, we see God as both judge and redeemer. And so today, as we look at this story, I I want us to see how God was with Israel, his people, and how the story of the Exodus points to his own son, Jesus, and how it impacts even our Exodus this morning. And we'll see in just a bit. But look at the scripture in chapter 13, verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red See, then in verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. And so there's God's promise, that he will care for his people. And then they set out. Verse 20 tells us, on the edge of the wilderness. But in verse 21, it says, The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so here are the people of Israel. And they are free to go. They are free to leave Egypt and the slavery that they faced for so many years. And they marched out, the scripture tells us, in an orderly fashion. But how were they led? They were led by this cloudy pillar. It was a symbol of God's presence among his people. And the Lord himself was in the pillar. And often he would even speak from the pillar to the people. And so the pillar of cloud and fire remained over the Israel lights until they entered Canaan under Joshua's leadership. But think about this. What did that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire provide? I imagine it was hot. <laughs> As they approached the wilderness and the desert, I imagine the days were hot. I imagine it was tough on the men, but also the women and the children of these millions of Israelites in this orderly fashion, walking both day and night. And so here you have this fire that would lead them in the cool of the night. But in the heat of the day, this cloud that acted as an umbrella. And so here you have God's presence. God was with them. And so God's presence was a guiding light, a comforting presence to the Israelites. And that's who God is. God is light. God's this guiding light. He is a comfort. He is a comforting presence to his people. And he's going to lead them. And how is he going to lead them? Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. The Lord is going to speak to Moses, and he's going to tell Moses this. The sons of Israel are to turn back. And you shall camp in front of Balsephon, 
opposite by the sea. As you're going to see this morning, I'm going to skip some parts real quick to give you some high notes. And so they're going to camp by the sea. And so they're going to go south. They're going to go toward the Red Sea. And then it says in verse 3, For Pharaoh will save the sons of Israel. They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And so what Moses is being told by God is, Hey, listen, um, we want it to appear to Pharaoh and the Egyptians that the Israelites are fearful and running aimlessly as they head out. And this is going to be the appearance that they're going to leave on the Egyptians. And then look at verse uh, um, 3. They are wandering aimlessly in the land. And then verse 4. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And it says that the Israelite people, they did so. So what do you have here? God is setting something up. He is setting up a holy war. And what's the appearance? That the the Israelites are aimless and therefore ready prey for recapture and destruction. But this is a trap. This is a trap for the Egyptians. As God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, this is going to be spoken of three different times in Exodus 14, verse 4, verse 8, and verse 17. And so he has beginning to come obstinate to the Israelite people who are now going out of slavery. God is going to harden his heart against them again. And what's the purpose? In verse 4, it says that I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. For God's glory, he's going to set up this holy war. And then look what happens in verse 5. It continues, and when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And so Pharaoh says, hey, ready up the chariots, men, let's get and let's go get them, right? So God's hardening his heart, and look at verse 10, as Pharaoh drew near the sons of Israel, looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. Can you imagine the Israelite people? Here we go again. Here we go again. They become fearful and terrified. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, God's servant, is it because there were no graves in Egypt, right? (laughs) Was there no place to bury us there? That you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone. (laughs) Let us be enslaved, right? That we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're fearful. They're afraid as they see the Egyptians coming, right? But God has a plan. God has a plan. And so Moses says to the people, verse 13, do not be afraid. Why? He says, stand by. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, mark these words, remember these, you will never see them again forever. And then in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I love that last phrase there, while you keep silent. Basically, Moses is saying, hey, shut up. (laughs) End your whining, right? But you think about it, if I'm the Israelites, I mean, I kind of get it. I'd be sitting there thinking, come on, 
the plagues, the Passover. We were let go. Finally, and we're heading out. And now you tell us to go here, and you tell us to go there. And, and there they are again, and they're coming after us. I can, I, I can imagine going there. We can all imagine probably going where they went and being fearful. But Moses says, listen, God will fight for you. Do not be afraid. I mean, how many of us need to hear that this morning? Don't be afraid. Whatever circumstance, whatever you're dealing with in life where, man, maybe you're afraid of what's gonna happen. Maybe God is calling you to take a step out in obedience, but man, you're afraid. You're afraid to do that. Hear these words this morning. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. That's what God does. And he did it for his people. But how does he do it? Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Get moving. Come on. Let's go. As for you, Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. Do what? (laughs) And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Can you imagine Moses looking at the Lord saying, uh, what's going to happen? The sea's going to do what? I mean, I'm just wondering how Moses really took that in, right? How he took all that in. The sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. So Moses, you're going to do this, do this, but God says, As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots, through his horsemen, and then the Egyptians will know this, that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots, and through his horsemen. So he uses his servant. He uses his staff and his hand as though it's his very own hand. God does. And he is going to act in a supernatural way in dividing the sea so they can go walk on dry land. For what reason? For his reputation. For God's glory. It's all about God's glory. And so God's going to act for his glory and Israel's good. And then look at verse 19. I love this. The angel of God, the angel of the Lord, whom had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. So he goes from being a presence ahead of them, right, and over them, of this guiding presence. Now he goes behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them now. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one who did not come near the other all night. And so what an amazing picture here of the presence of God. It's this guiding presence. Now it moves to what? This guarding presence. And that's what God's presence really is. It's a guiding presence, but it's also a guarding presence. God protects us. He, he guards us. And he does that with the Israelite people. He becomes this rear guard for them as they move forward between the Egyptians and before them, God stands. Why? Because he's going to fight for them. He's going to fight for them. And then look at verse 21. It happens. This is amazing. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night. Can you imagine this scene? And it turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. Right? And this is amazing. This is amazing. We see God in Genesis dividing the land 
and the waters. And here he's doing it with the strong east wind. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea and the dry land. The waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians took up the pursuit. So imagine this picture of two million Israelites. Right? In a group of about a, maybe a half mile wide going through the Red Sea. Amazing. Water on each side. And then Pharaoh, his horses, his chariots, his horsemen, in verse 23, go in after them in the midst of the sea. In the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire. There's that, there's that presence that was guarding them and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty, all right? Like 635, right? Uh, I'll quote, that's John Garmany. That's John Garmany's quote. He added that the last hour, so I wouldn't give him credit for that. All right, and the Egyptians said this. I love this. Remember what God said back up in um, verse 17. I'm gonna harden their hearts so that they will what? Know that I'm the Lord and I will be honored through Pharaoh, even through his chariots and through his horsemen. Well, look at verse 25. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, right? Great difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Wow. They recognized what was going on here, right? This isn't just some weird act that the sea just happens to be splitting, Right? And the wall's going up on every side, and there's dry land. I mean, it's just, you know, they recognize, this is God. God's doing this. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 26, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. The Egyptians were fleeing right into it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone out into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. Remember what God said through Moses? You'll never see any of these Egyptians ever again, forever. And that happens. The son of Israel, verse 29, walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. In verse 31, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. This is a reverential awe. This is a reverential trusting in the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And so they had revived their confidence in God and their confidence in his servant Moses. Wow. Wow. Does this wow you? I mean, this, this is, I mean, can you imagine? Man, we're on a family vacation. We're kicking it on the beach, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, this half mile or so, just division of the sea. I mean, imagine this if you're like, Galveston or something? I don't know. Can you imagine? And you're like, what's going on here, guys? You know, and you see these people. I mean, this, this is just Jerry's edition, but you imagine these people walking through and you're sitting there going, oh, wow. God fights for his people. He leads them. He guards them. He's with them. God's presence 
This is a beautiful picture. It's a picture of freedom. How God liberates his people. But it points ultimately to his son. When you think about the story of the Exodus, I want you to think about Jesus. And here's how. Let me give you a few sets of scripture this morning before we wrap up. But in Matthew chapter 2, I want to take you to when Jesus was born. Sometime after it, after the Magi appear to visit him and Mary and Joseph. You remember the Magi, they had a meeting with Herod. And Herod decided that he was going to go and, and wipe out infants take business into his own to snuff out this ruler, this Messiah that was to be born. And so Magi are going to go warn Joseph and Mary. And so we pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 2. It's also up on the screen for you. But it says, Now when they had gone, after being warned by the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to where? Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that's a quote from the book of Hosea, the prophet, in chapter 11, verse 1. and It's an amazing prophecy because out of Egypt he called his son Israel in the story of the Exodus but here it refers to his son speaking of Jesus and so what's amazing about this story of the Bible is that we see as, as, as God makes a people right these people Israel even though they experienced this great exodus out of Egypt, headed toward the promised land, heading toward Canaan. They wander in the wilderness for 40-some years, and God keeps providing manna, right, from heaven. I mean, he continues to want to have a relationship with them. What do they keep doing? They keep giving God the stiff arm, disobeying God over and over and over again. But here we see in Matthew chapter 2, really the ultimate Israel. And who is that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ, God's son. And we see glimpses of this in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was led by the Spirit, probably just the next page over for you, into the desert, right? And that's where the Israelites are led. And there the devil will tempt Jesus. And through his temptation, Jesus will quote Deuteronomy two or three times. And in one passage in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, you remember what Jesus said to the enemy as he was being tempted? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's directly from Deuteronomy 8, 3. That was given to the people of Israel. You remember that? people of Israel heard that word, but they didn't value God's word. They disobeyed it. They wanted food more. <laughs> they were more concerned about where's our next meal coming from, right? Then obeying the word of God. But Jesus, 
the ultimate Israel. He obeys God's word. He obeys it. He follows it. And that's who Jesus is. And as we see in Matthew and Mark and Luke, we see that Jesus is referred to like the, the ultimate Adam in Scripture. He's referred to like the, the ultimate uh, David, the son of David. But, but he's also that ultimate Israel. As God has called him out of Egypt, his own son. But what does that mean for us? Well, I want to take you again to another scripture, Luke 9. We studied this a couple of months ago. in Luke 9, verse 28 through 31. And listen to what the writer Luke says. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James, Jesus did, and they went up on a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, and they were Moses, ding, 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 and Elijah were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This account is the transfiguration. And we've taught this before in Luke, and as a part of this spectacular event with Moses and Elijah, what is Jesus talking to them about? His departure. You know what word that is? Exodus. It's the word Exodus. It's meant to call our ears and our attention back to the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. Jesus, as the ultimate Israel, is going to depart. He's going to leave. He is going to exit. But what does that mean? What does that mean? In Luke 9, 51, 20 verses down, it says, When the days draw near for Jesus to ascend or to be taken up, he set his face upon Jerusalem. And so what was he talking to Moses? And what was he talking to Elijah about? He was talking about as he went to Jerusalem, how he was going to die on a cross. He was going to be buried. He was going to raise again on the third day. And then 40 days later, he was going to ascend to heaven. And so when we speak about the exodus of Jesus, that's what it is. It's about the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was set on that. He was set on his Exodus as the true Israel, so that one day he would take his people in a triumphant array to a new heaven and a new earth. That's what Jesus came for, so that his great Exodus would become our Exodus. And how does that? When you think about Jesus this morning, and you think about the Israelite people. What did they experience? As part of the story of the Exodus, they experienced the Passover. And you remember what they were to do? They were to take a lamb, and they were to take the blood, and they were to pour it on, put it over the doorposts. And those who were in the house, they were safe, right? From the angel of wrath that came, from God's wrath. But those who did not have it, Right? They would lose their firstborn. You mean the wailing and the crying in Egypt. And so who is Christ for us? He is our Passover lamb. He is guaranteed that the angel of wrath, the destruction of right judgment, passes over us. 
who are in Jesus Christ because he took our place as the Passover lamb. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And he's been sacrificed for us. This is at the heart of our exodus that comes through Jesus Christ alone for those who, as Paul says in Romans 10, 9, confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, and they will be saved. They'll be saved from God's wrath because of Christ, the Passover lamb. And so let me ask you this morning. Have you experienced this exodus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you been brought out of slavery to sin and to death. And this morning, you might even sit here this morning and say, listen, I'm not enslaved. The Bible says we all are enslaved to sin and death. We all need to be redeemed, purchased, bought out of slavery and set free. And that's what Jesus came to do. And that's what the story of the Exodus is about. That the true Israel came And he experienced an exodus so that we would experience an exodus. But church, this morning, I want to encourage you with this word too. You see, after the exodus, what do we see? We see a generation of Israelites who disobeyed God. (laughs) They didn't finish well, did they? Right? And we're told in Hebrews chapter 3, a lesson in light of that. And I want to just read this to you in verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me, talking about the Israelites in the wilderness, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry, God says, with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Tough words. So what is the writer saying? He's saying Christians, church, learn something from the story of the Exodus. Because there was a generation who was escaped slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, but they did not make it to the promised land. And why? Because of their disobedience. Because of their unbelief. You see, God has sent his son Jesus to go through this great exodus as the true Israel to lead us into a promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. But we must believe, and as Christians, we must have perseverance. We must persevere to the end. Don't fall away. Don't fall away for lack of persevering. That's why he says in Hebrews 3, 14, we have become partakers, sharers with Christ. We have this relationship. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end, unlike the Israelites who many disbelieved and disobeyed. We are made sharers with Christ. That's why Romans chapter 2, I'll just kind of spin your wheels a little bit this morning on this one. Romans 2 says that a true Jew is one inwardly. Those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior are a true Jew. You are grafted in, right? 
And just as Jesus is that true Israel, you get to be sons and daughters of him, shares with him as true Jews, right, of the true Israel. And his exodus becomes your great exodus. Amazing, amazing. And that's who Jesus becomes to us, but we must hold fast, steadfastly to the end. The conviction we had, the belief we had in the beginning when we came to Christ, hold on to that. Hold on to that and persevere to the end. Don't be like the many Israelites who didn't. So this Advent, when you think of Jesus, I want you to think of the story of the Exodus. And I want you to think about his Exodus. And I want you to think about, because of him, your Exodus, and what he did for you, so that you could be taken from slavery to now freedom and life in Jesus Christ, no longer fearful of death, but trusting in Christ and set free to experience eternal life and knowing one day I've got a great promised land, new heavens and new earth that I will be taken to, to enjoy forever. Let me pray.